right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit. I think I successfully navigated this uh, obstacle course up here without breaking anything. And um, happy Advent. Happy almost Christmas to you a couple days away. And I uh, thought we'd start this sermon off on a uh, pleasant note as we wrap up uh, Matthew chapter 2. I want you to think about Christmas traditions. I don't know what your particular Christmas traditions are. I don't know if it's hot chocolate related, Christmas cookies related. I'm not sure why I'm only thinking about unhealthy food, but whatever it might be. Um, I've had actually a lot of people ask me over the past uh, couple of weeks, like, what are your family's particular traditions? And there's a particular tradition um, that's mine that I wanted to share with you. It happens annually. Um, it's happened annually for the last eight years because it's happened every single year that the Summit Church has existed and we're, we're about to turn eight. And so for the last eight years, every year, at the end of October, or the beginning of November, I have this tradition where I go to a local coffee shop. I uh, order a hot chocolate, maybe a peppermint hot chocolate, if I'm feeling particularly adventurous that day. I find a nook in which I kind of cozy up in. I open my Bible, and I try to figure out what are we going to teach through uh, for our Advent series? What part of the Bible are we going to walk through? And every single year for the last eight years, without fail, I have turned to uh, the Gospel according to Matthew. That's the one I've always wanted to start with. And I, and I have this whole process where I map out, okay, so the first week it would be like this. All right, the first week we'll hit the genealogy. The second week we'll hit this. The third week we'll hit this. And then there's this moment of horrific realization of what we have to talk about the fourth week, um, where it's like, okay, well, if we're doing this right, the fourth week will be about Herod killing an entire town uh, full of children. That's the Sunday before Christmas. That's the Sunday when the grandparents are in town to watch the kids on stage sing about Christmas. And then I traditionally then just flip to another part of the Bible and be like, maybe we'll get to Matthew at some point. And it's just like, man, this is going to be dark. And kind of in the words of uh, Michael Scott, like, happy birthday, Jesus. Sorry, your party's so lame. Like, that's kind of what I feel like, like it's going to happen, right? So, so um, that's what I do every year without fail. I, I, I've always wanted to do Matthew. And yet here we are. Uh, Andy, I was, I was almost expecting Andy as he was reading the text to be like, Surely we're not teaching this on the Sunday before Christmas, right? But here we are. So why, why are we here? So a few reasons. I'm going to give you three. One is it's just important to be honest about what happened historically around the birth of Jesus, okay? I just think that's, that's important. If we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus, we should talk about what actually happened around the birth of Jesus. Secondly, I think that um, it's, it can actually be tremendously good news when we're honest about just how broken the world is, especially not even, but especially around the Christmas season, where there's this cultural pressure to sort of feel like this is the most magical time of the year. Uh, I think for many of us, that is not reality. And one of the things we say around here at the Summit, I know a lot of you are in town, so I'll be catching up on some of the things we talk about. But one of the things we, we say a lot around the Summit is it's like reality matters. It's in the context of reality where God meets us changes us, engages us. And a lot of times our lives are set up to ignore reality, silence reality, self-medicate ourselves, to not have to deal with reality. But it's in the context of reality where God meets us, engages us, changes us. And so it's important to be honest about, like, things in the world are not the way that they should be. And I think some of you are not only feeling that this Christmas season, but it's amplified during the Christmas season where there's this added cultural pressure to be like, isn't everything just rosy? And you're like, well, that's not my experience. And it kind of stinks that I can't even talk about that. Third, I think the reason this is so significant is because, again, this is another thing we say around the summit a lot, and we said this a lot in the Exodus series, for those of you who are with us when we walk through Exodus, but it's in the context of the darkest of days where the God of light shines the brightest. In the context of the darkest of days where the God of light shines the brightest. And Matthew 2 is really um, one of the chief examples 
of this reality. And what I'm hoping for you is not only for you to see this in the scriptures and this story, but for you to understand how it intersects with your own personal story as well. I've even been thinking about this because Christmas is weird, right? Because it happens at the end of the year, but you're also thinking about kind of the year that came before. And um, so it's not just Christmas, but it's also almost the end of 2018. And I've been thinking about kind of the highs and the lows of the past year. And even I was thinking a lot about um, just a lot of death in 2018. Again, I know that's a downer, like right before the Christmas um, season, but like a lot of death. And I was thinking about one of our people who suddenly, very young, tragically died out of nowhere right before Easter. And um, the, the Thursday before Easter, sitting in that room for a memorial that we had for him, uh, for his community and his sister getting up and saying, we are ruined, we are wrecked, this came out of nowhere, um, and we don't know how we're going to make it forward. Um, but one of my brother's favorite sayings was, it's in the darkest of days where the God of light shines the brightest. Um, that was the most significant, one of the most significant moments for me in 2018. And I'm thinking about that a lot, in particular, as we move to um, Matthew chapter 2, and we see this reality come to light. So we're going to go ahead and dive into it, and uh, I don't know if you're excited or not, but I think it'll be good, at least. Uh, and... Uh, um, and we'll just be honest about what happened around the first Christmas. So the way we're going to tackle this are three particular ways. We're going to ask the question of what is the story? So what happened um, after the, the, the first Christmas? Secondly, what's the larger biblical story that's going on here? Um, and then third, we'll ask how does this intersect with our own story? Okay, so the story, the larger biblical story, and then, then our story. We'll go ahead and dive in and look at uh, what the story is. Now, if you're with us last week, you remember we said basically last week and this week are one long, very long sermon. And last week we spent the majority of our time talking about the historical context into which Jesus was born. It really was politically, socially, culturally the darkest of days, particularly because a guy named Herod, who will be reintroduced to again this morning, uh, was reigning and ruling. And we said a couple things about Herod, if you remember. We said, one, Herod was almost unparalleled in his power of that day, and really of any political regime in history. He was very, very powerful. And secondly, Herod was really, really crazy. And he was a bad dude, and he just murdered people all the time. So that's the context into which Jesus chose to be born. It truly was a very frightening time. It truly was the darkest of days. Now we're going to jump into verse 13, and as we walk through this passage, what we're going to see are three different characters and three different um, things we can learn from each of these men um, that we'll look into. And the first we're going to look at is uh, Joseph, who was Jesus' adoptive dad. And we're going to look at Joseph, and we're going to see in Joseph the nature of true greatness. Now look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, now, when they had departed, now the they there is the wise men that were visiting Jesus, we see that these unlikely guys, I'm going to talk more about them tomorrow night at our Christmas Eve service, but these unlikely pagan priests bend the knee in worship and obedience to the baby Jesus. They have now departed, rather than going and telling Herod where the baby is, they have decided to go another way. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, this is one of the major themes of Matthew 1 and 2. Angels, and if you literally translated their names for what they meant, it means messenger, like they're messengers for God, are continually showing up to people in dreams. Joseph, most frequently, uh, to tell them certain things so that uh, they would be obedient and the plan of God would advance. This is, um, uh, I think it's the second time that uh, that, that, um, angels have shown up in a dream to Joseph. You're probably wondering if you're starting to be like, I don't know if I want to go to sleep tonight. I'm not sure what's going to happen. But um, it happens again later in the text. But anyways, okay, what did the angels say? They said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there till the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called 
my son. Now, one of the reasons I've always wanted to teach through Matthew, actually maybe the driving reason, is because Matthew gives us a unique glimpse into Jesus' adoptive dad, uh, Joseph. And I think one of the things that's happening here is that Matthew is intentionally drawing a contrast of what is true greatness. And you've got Herod, who self-labels himself great, right? Like, it's like he's at a party, and they're like, this is my friend Herod, and he's like, uh-uh. Okay, Herod the Great. Okay, good. You know, he's like, like, like how egomaniac, uh, 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 what an egomaniac you have to be in order to, like, go by the title Herod the Great. So you have this guy that everybody in culture is like, he's great. We talked about last week about all the things that he accomplished in which people would have labeled him as great. And then you have this humble, anonymous guy who just adopts Jesus. Like, that's who he is. He's a footnote, let's be honest, even in churches today, a lot of times we just go through the entire Christmas season without like even talking about Joseph whatsoever. We could kind of take him or we could leave him. But Matthew gives us some really important aspects of who Joseph is. Most explicitly, what we see in Joseph is he gives us a glimpse into what true greatness is in the kingdom and the economy of God. We see in Joseph what true greatness is in the kingdom and the economy of God. We see in the life of Jesus, he radically redefines what a great life is. And that a great life is marked not by how much money we can make, not by how many people we might happen to employ, not by how much power we might accumulate, but rather in the kingdom and economy of God, greatness is defined by our willingness to serve. Okay, It's what distinguishes the people of God from everybody else. Jesus would say this himself later in the gospel according to Matthew as an adult when he would say, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be uh, exalted. Jesus exemplified this in his life, not only willing to serve in small ways all the time, but in the ultimate way, going to a cross, taking our sins upon himself, even though he's the one sinless human being who's ever lived in the history of the world. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this this past week, where this posture where Jesus, his life was marked by service, um, was no doubt shaped and influenced by um, his heavenly father. But I think one of the realities we ignore, I've never thought about this until this life, is that one of the reasons that Jesus lived the life of service he did was not only because of his heavenly father, but also the example of his earthly father. I've never thought about that before. Think about kind of the, 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 the example of service that has exemplified Joseph up to this point. I mean, the woman he's engaged to gets pregnant. He's not the father. Even though... He, Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're talking in a culture where one, and we talked about this the first week, most people in the city are like, sure, the Holy Spirit, that's what you're calling it. Okay, you know, like, like it's very, very scandalous in this culture. There's all sorts of costs that would have come on him to even say, I'm going to stay committed to this woman. I mean, already at this point, you have to think about this. A lot of times men um, like want to run away from commitment Ladies, do you want to say anything about that? I don't know if you want to or not. It's sort of an awkward pause in there. So I, I mean, like, hopefully not the men of the Summit Church. We're pushing you to like, reject passivity and accept responsibility and to lead and love courageously. But historically, a lot of times and socially today, men run away from commitment. And you see Joseph in this context where it would have been culturally, not only culturally permissible, but culturally encouraged for him to run away from commitment in this context. And instead, he runs to Mary and her unborn child, Jesus, who is in her womb. Now, here's the thing I always, here's what never really, like struck me. is like, I used to be like, okay, that happens. And man, that should, must have been really hard. And then they had the baby and then everything was okay. But that's not what happens. Things get worse after Jesus is born, not better. And this crazy King Herod 
declares that this baby that, Jesus, or that Joseph has just adopted is now an enemy of the state, which is just a weird political policy altogether. But anyways, that's the type of leader that Herod was. This baby is an enemy of the state, and we are going to use the resources of the state to murder him, and probably not only him, but his family as well, which leads to a place where Joseph has to answer the question, am I going to stay committed to this baby who's not even biologically my own, or am I, uh, or am I going to abandon him and his mother? Which would have been, again, what a lot of men would have done. It would have been like, you know what, I was okay with the whole like conceived of the Holy Spirit thing, but now now I'm out, right? Like, now I'm out. Like, like, I don't want to exactly get into a fight with Herod, who just, like, murders people before breakfast, and that's just, like, a normal day for him. And yet he stays committed. A great expense to himself, actually, a great expense to himself to such a degree that his family, in that moment, becomes political refugees, I don't know if you realize, like, that's what happens. They become political refugees, they're enemies of the state, and consequently they have to flee from their lives, for their lives, and they have to immigrate from where they're living at that time, about four to 500 miles away to Egypt, where they will spend the first uh, period of Jesus' life. You think about how hard that would be to move to an entirely new culture, have to get a new job, be severed from all your family connections and things like that. Like, I don't want to move to another house in my neighborhood, Okay. Because, like, moving is that unthinkably unbearable to me, okay? I definitely don't want to be doing it with small kids in the house because that just makes everything, like, a thousandfold more difficult. Like, I'm just trying to think about taking the baby Jesus to Egypt, right? Like, and they couldn't hop on a plane. I don't like flying with my young kids. I love my kids. I just don't want to move with them, and I don't want to get on a flight with them, okay? And it's like, and it's like, and here's Joseph being like, you know what? Like, if this is what it takes, if this is what God's called me to do, even, a great, even if I'm going to lose everything, which he basically does. He basically loses his entire life before meeting Mary and Jesus. But he's like, you know what? The greatness of life is marked not by how much I can accomplish, not how much safety I can have, not how much security I can have, not how much autonomy I can have, but instead in commitment and sacrifice and service. And he exemplifies, he exudes what true greatness really is. And it's a striking contrast to a guy like Herod who self-labeled himself as being great. All right, so we see that in Joseph. Secondly, we see this about Jesus. We see Jesus in his lifetime of sorrow. Jesus in his lifetime of sorrow. One of the prophecies, and, and Matthew will be bringing out uh, prophecies of Jesus left and right, and he has been. But one of the prophecies about Jesus um, that stem back to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, is that the Messiah will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, I think for me, I typically think of that's a pretty famous prophecy, and probably some of you are familiar with it. And I think that if you're familiar that like Jesus would be a man of sorrows, it's easy to be like, yeah, like he lived 29 and a half years, and he got to hang out with his buddies and go fishing sometime. That's actually better than my life. Um, and then he went to the cross, which stinks, and that's when he became a man of sorrows. But actually, what Matthew is showing us is for the totality of Jesus' life, Jesus was a man of sorrows, even from the cradle, not just from the cross, but even from the cradle, Jesus was a man who was acquainted with grief. Now, look at verse 16. See what happens next here. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. Now, what happened was Herod told the wise men, okay, go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, he was talking to them in Jerusalem. Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem. So he's like, okay, go down to Bethlehem, find where the baby is, and report back to me so I can go and kill the baby. Now, very quickly, Herod realizes um, he's been tricked because five miles isn't that far away. There's nothing to do in Bethlehem. Like if you pull up the TripAdvisor list of top 10 things to do in Bethlehem, 
there's like nothing. Like it's just like we can only think of two. And it's like the world's largest ball of twine or something like that. And then see the baby Jesus. So they saw the baby Jesus. They saw the big ball of yarn or whatever it is. And they don't come back, right? And so it turns into, I don't know how much period of time it is, but it didn't have to be very long for Herod to start to recognize, oh, these guys aren't coming back. And he is furious. And Herod, in Herodian-like fashion, flies off the handle and he does something awful. He became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. So if you remember last week, um, you know, again, we talked about who Herod was historically. We're not too shocked by this gross and awful action that Herod would take. But last week, he asked the wise men, when did the star appear? And he's done the math to say, okay, the oldest that Jesus could be is somewhere around two years old. And consequently, we are not going to take any um, precautions. We won't allow any room for error. And Herod mandates that all the boys in Bethlehem, two years and younger, would be killed. I heard somebody say this past week, and it's been a haunting phrase to me, that the first martyrs in the history of Christianity were not the apostles, but rather the baby boys of Bethlehem. I never thought about that before. You know, and um, one of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about over the past couple of weeks in preparing to teach this text is how Jesus, as we already said, as Jesus was acquainted with grief, not just at the cross, but even as early as the cradle. I mean, I was even thinking about, like, imagine you're sitting down to lunch with somebody or counseling somebody or somebody's like, hey, I want to meet. And so you, you're like, hey, like, tell me your story, right? Like, have you ever asked somebody that question? Like, just tell me the story. Tell me about how you grew up. And imagine, like, hearing something like this from Jesus. Like, well, um, I, I was born to an unwed mother. It was a scandal in my community, even though I was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Nothing shady happened. Um, it, it, like, it was a scandal. I was actually made fun of it for my entire life that um, people would say I wouldn't even know who my, my real dad is. You'd already be like, whoa, that's, like, really hard. That you must have, he's like, oh, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. So I was born, and then immediately I was labeled an enemy of the state. Oh, that's weird. That's unusual. Okay, yeah, the king actually sent out a public mandate. It wasn't, like, behind the scenes. He actually publicly said that I should die. Okay, this is getting a little dark. Um, is it over? No. Okay, so here's what happened, was that my family had to become political refugees. We had to immigrate from where we were living at the time uh, all the way to Egypt. Oh, okay, congratulations on your survival. Well, there's some bad news. Um, the king, who was crazy, uh, even though he couldn't kill me, actually killed all the boys my age or younger in an attempt to take my life. You're like, wow, that would, that's a pretty heavy backstory, Jesus. You know, you'd be like, yeah, that's a lot of pain. And even I was thinking a lot about, um, I never thought about it until this week, but like, you know, one of the things that characterized Jesus was like his love of children. You know, you have these moments in the life of Jesus where like children are trying to come to him and the disciples are like, no, 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 he's like way too important for the children. And Jesus is like, no, 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 like let the little children come to me. And it's like, surely this memory was in the back of his mind as he sees these children running to him. You know, and what you're seeing exemplified in the life of Jesus is that his entire story was marked by, in a lot of ways, incomparable tragedy and pain. It wasn't just like the, the three days before he was crucified. Like, his whole life was like this. And it's not just, here, here's where this, inter I'm, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but just, I feel led to say this in this moment, that 
the reason this is good news and not just a complete bummer is because what you see in the person and work of Jesus is a savior who is not even able, not just able to save you as good news as that is, but is perfectly able to identify with our brokenness as well. And I think in particular for those of you who feel unique pain around Christmas and how it's like, you know who else did? It was Jesus Christ. You think about the unique pain that he felt that surrounded the events of his birth and how hope was somehow um, simultaneously going on with unimaginable tragedy. You think about the unique ways of Jesus not not being able to only sympathize, but even empathize. That is that he is able to emotionally feel what it is that you feel. And even like, again, I don't know if this is sort of too heavy for the Sunday before Christmas, but here it goes. It's just like, you know, I think about for a number of you in this room, you know, I think about particularly when you read a story about children being taken away, and I think about how for those of you who have lost kids, um, that Christmas is like uniquely painful in that respect. It's uniquely painful. And you know what, like, like in one hand, like as a pastor, it's like, do you even bring it up? Do you even like kind of like bring up people's pain in that way? But on the other hand, there's this unique empathy of Jesus that can be pointed to to say, you know, even for those of you who have experienced something as painful as losing a child, somehow Jesus is able to identify with that pain as well. That even your Father in heaven, looking down on all these tragic events unfolding, can know that his son is going to be slaughtered as well. And the ability of our God to look at the brokenness of the human experience and not say, well, like, that stinks, good luck. And not callously from a distance be like, I'm sorry, but what do we long for the most when we go through something tragic is to find somebody who's walked through the same valley of the shadow of death. And even though maybe I haven't or maybe even all your friends haven't, you know who has? is Jesus Christ, your Savior is Jesus Christ your Savior, who is able to not only perfectly save you, but perfectly identify with what we need saving from. And he is choosing from, even from the cradle, to perfectly and fully identify with the most tragic experiences of the human experience. Finally, we look at Herod. Herod, we see with him, the comfort of judgment. If you look at verse 19, the text says this, but when Herod died, which, don't miss this, Herod dies, and he doesn't get back up again. Herod dies, and Herod, who self-labeled himself as being great, um, is only known, what's the only reason we know who Herod is? Is because he is a footnote in the story of the baby he tried to kill. Like, that's the only reason we know who you are, Herod. That's the only reason we're talking about you at Christmas, is because you failed in killing this baby. You're not great. You tried to stamp out true greatness, and you died, and you didn't get back up again, like the one you tried to kill. And so we see with Herod that he is just one more footnote and one more enemy that has been trampled over by the true conquering king, Jesus. Now, elsewhere in the scriptures, we're told that it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, again, this is sort of like a bizarre, you typically don't want to talk, judgment's usually like more around the Easter season, and then you're like Christmas, you're like warm fuzzies, right? So let's, I like to push against cultural norms. So I know we don't like judgment as a culture, right? We're like anti-judgment and things like that. But can we just be honest? I don't know if this is a safe place for you or not. I hope it is. But like, can we just be honest and be like, isn't it kind of good news that Herod gets judged? 
Isn't, isn't it actually like really good news that Herod has to answer for his crimes? Isn't it good news that it's not like, you know what happens to Herod? Is he just accumulated so much power and so much influence, nobody could hold him accountable for what it is that he did. You know what's good news? Is the story is not like, you know, and Herod was reincarnated and he got another chance to try better as a bumblebee or something like that. You know what's good news? Is that it wasn't like Herod's existence came to an end, right? It's like, like a light switch got turned off and like, boop, existence is over. You got to murder all these people. Genocide, no big deal. But you know what happened? You know what the scriptures say? Is that Herod died. We die once and then we stand before our maker accountable for what it is that we've done. And isn't it comforting in a culture where we don't like talking about judgment, but yet we have these moments where we come face to face as we have this Sunday, quite uncomfortably, with true evil and with a shaking revelation that things in this world are not the way that God designed them to be and that real wickedness is executed by the hands of various men and women throughout history. But it's not reincarnation. It's not the light switch goes off. It's not no accountability whatsoever. But Herod, who called himself great, would stand before the judgment seat of the God who truly is great. And he would answer for what it is that he's done for all of eternity. Merry Christmas, everybody. But, I mean, seriously, like, that's the historical Christmas. And it's good news. It's good news in the midst of the brokenness that surrounds us as well. So, all right. Now, what's the bigger biblical story that's going on here. Matthew's doing something very intentional here as he tells this story, and there's an important theme that should jump out to us. What Matthew's doing here is he's pointing us back intentionally to the story of the Exodus. And um, if you're with us in 2017, you know we spent the entire year walking through the Exodus, and there's all these intentional callbacks to what it is um, that happened then, a, a flight to Egypt, a murder of Hebrew baby boys by an evil king, all this to fulfill, and, and Matthew's quite explicit in this, what was declared by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. So what is happening here? There's something very intentionally, biblically, that Jesus is not only beginning his life, but beginning his life in such a way that he is both reenacting and re-experiencing the major events that the people from whom he descended experienced most explicitly in Matthew 2, the exodus. And it's not just for the sake of being like, well, isn't that neat? Isn't that cool that 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 happened? But to communicate a far larger purpose that a truer and greater exodus has finally arrived now that the real Messiah has stepped into enemy-occupied territory. That the Messiah is here, that the conquering king is here, that finally God has stepped out of heaven into history to do more than liberate his people from slavery. Not that that's not a big deal. Like you never diminish, like, oh, people being liberated from slavery, that's not a big deal whatsoever. It's a huge deal. But actually, what God is proclaiming and what Jesus is intentionally going through is this reenactment and re-experience of the Exodus story to say the truer and better liberator is here. His name is Jesus, and he has came not only to set the captives free, but to set the captives free from all of the tyranny of sin and Satan and hell and death. And he's come, and he's here, and he's arrived. The truer and better exodus is underway. Get ready. That's basically what they're saying. It's like, get ready. Get ready, because God is not done with his people, and where his people failed, and where Israel disappointed, and where they, were, where they continually um, didn't live up to what it is that God uh, asked of them, where the children of God disappointed again and again and again. And that's the story of the Old Testament, is God being immeasurably good, 
immeasurably gracious, immeasurably, look, I don't want to give up on you. My covenant love extends to you. And the children of God failing again and again and again and again. That's our story as well. Where the children of God failed, the Son of God arrived to accomplish for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what Matthew is saying, is this rescue mission is just underway and get ready because a truer and better exodus to liberate us from the bondage of sin and slavery and death and hell is underway. Now this asks, leads to the final question. How does this intersect then with our story? How does this intersect with our story? And um, to make this a little bit Christmassy, I frame these in the context of gifts because we like gifts at Christmas and maybe you'll have a little bit warmer feeling at the end of this as you think about gifts. So um, I think about three things that uh, in particular this text gives us uh, this particular Christmas season. The first is the gift of comfort in the face of judgment. The gift of comfort in the face of judgment. You know, as you talk about judgment, I think people who are self-aware when you talk about judgment, um, the healthiest people and the most self-aware people are the people that aren't like, yeah, there's a bunch of wickedness out there, but they also ask the question about, like, what about the wickedness in here? And they're not like, yes, God's going to judge people, but they're like, what happens when I stand judgment before God? That's self-aware people, right? Because they know what goes through their head and their mind and their heart, and they know what it is they feel. And the point of the Christmas season is not to be like, yeah, Herod's going to be judged, and you're like, yes, that's awesome, but also to say there's a comfort that comes with the fact that we're going to be judged as well. That what differentiates the people of God from somebody like Herod is rather than trying to reign and rule over the King Jesus, we, in the legacy of the wise men, bend our knees in worship and obedience. And it's more than just worship and obedience. Like, we love that guy, we want to follow that guy. But somehow, in the beautiful, mysterious economy of God, that baby will grow into a man who will be righteous perfectly in a way that we can never be righteous, so that we might be gifted righteousness before a righteous God. That he might be killed in our place for our sin to take the punishment and the consequences we deserve for unrighteousness so that we might be gifted the gift of forgiveness. And he might resurrect three days later, unlike anybody else, even somebody as great as Herod. Herod dies, and he's like eaten by worms within a few days. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but within a few days. <laughs> Jesus, he dies, and three days later, he's back up again. Why? Because he's not only man, but he is the God-man, God with us, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, and when he resurrects, it is not just a, a, an encore to be like, man, it's really impressive the way he finished off his life, but it's a declaration of his victory over the greatest enemies of humanity that we have no answer for, like Satan's sin and death and hell. And what differentiates the gospel from all other expressions of religion and worldviews is we're not just given a list of instructions to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps to be good enough for God. Who can be good enough for a perfect God? But instead, we are giftedness, a righteousness, a forgiveness, a victory we can never earn on our own. And consequently, then, the point of the Christmas season is a certain comfort, but, but not comfort in a warm, fuzzy, nebulous, unable to point in tangible way, but a specific comfort that comes to say, when I die once, and when I stand before the judgment, this baby who grows into a man has gifted me. He has, he has, he has robed me in his righteousness and forgiveness and his victory. And consequently, as I look forward to the day of death, I look not with fear and trembling, but instead with great comfort. In fact, that's what the prophet Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, my people. Comfort. And we can experience that as well as God's people. Secondly, we're given the gift of full identification in the midst of our sorrows. The gift of full identification in the midst of our sorrows. We already hit this some, but I'll, but I'll um, just kind of revisit it because I think it's so important. 
When we're going through really difficult things, what is one of the things that we absolutely want the most? We want somebody who has gone through the same thing as us, don't we? That's why support groups are formed. That's why it's so hurtful when people who haven't been through the same thing as whatever you're going through say stupid things trying to help, and you're like, I just want to punch you in the face right now, right? And, you know, and God probably would have been like, go for it. Like, he did say something stupid. And it's like, he didn't really say that. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> But we yearn for that, don't we? we? We yearn for somebody to, with whatever it is you might be going through and whatever might be uh, amplified for you this Christmas season, for somebody who is able to identify with our pain. Like, like it's, it's kind of hard to exactly explain why, but isn't it good news for the soul when somebody's like, I know exactly what you're going through? And they, like, you like, share stories, and you're like, yeah, I know. and that, you know, like, There's just a certain level of identification. And the point of the Christmas story is that in Jesus, we are gifted not only just a victor and a savior, but a perfect identifier. Somebody who is able to perfectly and fully identify with the brokenness of the human experience. And that's good news for our souls as well. And then third and finally, we are given the gift of power to live a life of true greatness. Because Jesus has not only saved us, but served us and radically redefined what greatness is, um, we are able to live lives of greatness if that greatness is defined correctly of being one of service. You know, I think one of the other challenges of Christmas is there's sort of this amplified expectation of like, we're going to change the world this season, right? Like, I'm going to do something that like really makes a difference. I'm going to be a world changer and, um, you know, if you've tried to push into that expectation or live up to that expectation, a lot of times it doesn't empower you to do greater things, but it crushes you because you feel like you're living a trivial life of no significance whatsoever, and God's angry at you all the time. And what good news it is that Jesus, in line with the legacy, not only of his heavenly father, but his earthly father, Joseph, radically redefines greatness to say it's not about how much you can make, it's not about how much you can do, but it's about who it is that you're serving. Here's the good news about this. Only a few people, it's like 1% of the 1%, can like fulfill greatness as the way the culture defines it, right? You become like a social media influencer and people are double tapping your Instagrams like crazy and people are sending you free stuff, right? Like that's 1% of the 1%. But you know what's really great in the economy and the kingdom of God is anybody can be great because anybody can serve. Anybody can serve. You're surrounded by a lot of people that you can serve and probably need it. You're surrounded, you live in a community. You exist in a city, you exist in a time where cynicism and skepticism are in vogue and service and love of neighbor without exception is absolutely necessary. And we, saved by Jesus, filled by his Holy Spirit, increasingly conformed into his image, are able to walk in the legacy of him and his heavenly father and earthly father so that we might be great as greatness really is. And that's what I hope really exemplifies you this Christmas, is a comfort that really has a definition, is a, um, a victory that is better than sort of the, the vague holiday songs a lot of times we sing, and is a life of service and sacrifice that is marked as a window into seeing the way that Jesus treated you first. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We're thankful for Christmas. And uh, yeah, I hope this text was helpful. Um, yeah, it didn't cause anybody unnecessary hardship or pain. 
as we were praying before uh, even the service, there's sort of this unique wedding together in the, in the gospel, and I think exemplified at Christmas, of pain and victory. The one side of the gospel is this affirmation that um, the world is broken, that we are broken, really worse than we want to admit. Um, I feel like even for a lot of us, we, we kind of function in a place where like, it's almost like the fall isn't real. And I think moments like Matthew 2 are shaking revelations of like, oh no, things really are bad. Like we really do need a savior. Like this really is not the way that God designed the world to be. And, um, and so many of us in this room have, can, can point to stories of that in our own lives and our own experiences. Um, but at the same time, let that pain be comforted by hope. Uh, again, not hope in a vague sense, but instead hope as defined by you. The hope that comes with this baby so humbly, even from his infancy, perfectly identifying with the worst of the human experience. This baby growing into a man who will continually exemplify what does it mean to be a man of sorrows. And this baby eventually being uh, killed and resurrecting so that he might fully take on the brokenness of the world and fully trample over it as well. And that by his grace, his death is our death. His victory is our victory. Let us cherish that anew uh, this Christmas. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.